KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Death and destruction are left behind by a small plane crash in Santee. As far as the plane occupants and the extent of the crash damage, uh, it was non-survivable. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. Jade Heinemann is out today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The school choice window is open for students in San Diego. Choice means I can look at my neighborhood school and maybe it'll meet my needs and maybe it won't. The rise in drug use during the pandemic is the subject of a California report investigation and will meet the people who help in recovery. That's ahead on Midday Edition. First, the news. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. The aftermath of the Santee plane crash and the school choice window is open in San Diego. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. Jade Heinemann is out today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. It's Tuesday, October 12th. Authorities are still trying to piece together what caused a plane to crash into a Santee neighborhood yesterday, killing two people. The Cessna 340A crashed just afternoon Monday into a UPS van and houses at Jeremy and Greencastle Streets. The UPS driver was killed Two houses went up in flames. The pilot of the aircraft was also killed. At least two people were injured in the crash and damage to houses extended throughout the area. The crash happened less than a mile from Santana High School. And joining me is KPBS news reporter Matt Hoffman. And Matt, welcome. Hey, Maureen. Can you describe the damage in the, at the crash site? There are pictures of a house fire and a truck that's been completely mangled. Yeah, so there's two houses on a block that uh, are completely unrecognizable, lots of fire damage, uh, but also just looks like, you know, the top half of them was sort of chopped off. Um, there's no sight of a plane. We know that a plane obviously hit that house. There's a lot of debris scattered within the street. Uh, there's a few burned out cars in the driveway. And then uh, there's that UPS truck uh, that also was caught on fire. Not sure if the plane hit that, uh, but it somehow was engulfed in flames. And we do know that one of the two fatalities did come uh, from a driver who was driving that van. Right. And the pilot of the Cessna was killed, too. What do we know about the pilot? Yeah, so we know that the pilot was a cardiologist at the Yuma Medical Center um, in Arizona. And we know that that's where the plane was coming from. It was coming from Yuma to Montgomery Airport up near Kearney Mesa. Uh, still really unsure what went wrong, but federal investigators are on the scene now. The National Transportation and Safety Board, as you say, yeah, is investigating the plane crash today. Have they said anything so far? Yeah, so they, they put out a little bit more of an update. They said that three of their investigators arrived on the scene this morning. Um, and right now they're in the process of documenting the scene. You, know, you see a lot of people walking around uh, with NTSB jackets on, uh, with cameras and, and clipboards sort of documenting everything they're seeing. 
Um, they're saying part of the investigation is going to be to request radar data, weather information, and air traffic control communication. Um, they say it's going to take about 15 days uh, to sort of uh, get a preliminary report coming out here. Uh, they're not releasing any names. Uh, they also did note that the aircraft, you know, sometimes when these bigger or larger planes crash, we know that this was a smaller one, uh, had these recorders on board. They said there was no flight recorder on board. Now, the crash occurred during a day where we had very high winds and a wind advisory was in place. Do you have any information on the weather's potential role in the crash? You know, we don't have any information about whether the weather sort of impacted that, that crash. Uh, we do know that that's something that federal investigators are going to be looking at. Uh, but just listening and reviewing some of the air traffic control, um, you can hear, you know, on one end from the airport, um, you could hear that uh, the pilot is dropping altitude and they're telling him to pull up, to pull up. Um, so maybe something went wrong mechanically. We don't know, uh, but really sort of unclear um, if weather played a factor into this. Now, two people who lived in a corner house uh, where that crash occurred, they barely got out alive. Their house was completely destroyed by fire. Do we know how they're doing? Yeah, there's some very dramatic video. Um, of neighbors, you know, about half a dozen of them rushing after they heard what, what sounded like a big explosion, uh, running over to try and help, ended up pulling uh, one of the women out of the window. Um, we do know, I actually just spoke to her son just a, a few minutes ago. Um, he lives over by San Diego State, so I had to drive out here to Santee when this all happened. Uh, very emotional time right now. Uh, we do know that the couple uh, were conscious when they were taken to the hospital, um, but they have burns, you know, third degree burns on their body. Um, and their recovery is still a ways out, but they are talking. Um, you know, the woman was asking right after the crash, what happened, what happened? Um, it's sort of since been explained to her, uh, but they do think, unfortunately, that one of uh, her dogs inside the house uh, passed away. What about the other house that was destroyed? What do we know about that? So we know that that house, investigators uh, said, was empty. Um, and it appears that the homeowners may be here in the area right now trying to deal with insurance. Like that, that's the next big hurdle. Um, I was talking to the son. Uh, of that couple that was inside that house, you know, uh, it's completely destroyed. So if they were released from the hospital, you know, tomorrow, uh, they don't have a home to go back to. So they're trying to figure out all those ins and outs right now. Is there a extensive damage to the rest of the neighborhood? Yeah, so we know that there was two houses that were completely destroyed and about 10 other homes that had some sort of damage, you know, whether it be from debris. Uh, we know that one house down the street, uh, the blast actually blew out a window. Um, so there's still some assessments underway, uh, but two homes that were completely damaged, uh, you know, about four cars that are complete total losses, completely burned out. Um, this, the sun described as like a war scene looking like out here, uh, but that's the sort of extent of it right now. Now, this crash occurred only blocks from Santana High School. That proximity must have made a lot of people nervous. Yeah, it's actually just a few blocks down the way. We were just talking to a gentleman out here said that he lives just over right by the high school. Uh, he said that he didn't hear uh, the, the sort of loud boom or the explosion. Um, he was home at the time, uh, but we do know from a lot of neighbors, they definitely heard it. A lot of people rushing out. A lot of those people talked to one gentleman this morning, who pulled that woman out of the house, you know, said that uh, he didn't get a lot of sleep last night, uh, still thinking about the impact and sort of the, the fallout afterward. And when are we going to hear more about the cause of this crash or, or the an update? Is there any update of any kind coming up? Yeah, so at, at this preliminary stage, the uh, NTSB says that they uh, do not have a cause, uh, but they will provide more information when it's available. Um, they say that, you know, uh, investigations involving fatalities and deaths um, are major investigations, and they take uh, quite a while. 
between a year and two years to complete, but we should know within 15 days when we get some more preliminary information about maybe what went wrong on that plane. KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman reporting from the scene of that crash in Santee yesterday. And Matt, thank you very much. Thanks, Maureen. The transition back to in-person school is a huge step forward for many families in the San Diego Unified School District. Now it's time for parents to think about which school they want their children to attend. The San Diego Unified School Choice Program is now accepting applications. Families have until mid-November to apply for spots in any of the 170 schools in the district. And joining me is KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. And M.G., welcome. Good to be with you. So students are usually enrolled in their neighborhood schools. How does school choice expand a student's options? Can they go to any school in the district? Can kids out of the district actually apply for the school choice plan? Yes. Actually, they uh, are eligible to apply to any school in the district that a parent might be interested in sending them to. And that does also apply to parents who are not in the district but are within San Diego County. Now, why would parents want their kids to switch schools? Is it only if they're having a problem at the neighborhood school? Uh, not at all. In fact, uh, it, it might be considered the opposite. If a student, for instance, has a particular interest in a subject area like science or the arts, uh, their parent might want them to go to a school that would allow them to, to really flourish in that kind of an environment. And that not probably is not their neighborhood school. So in order to get there, uh, the parent has to apply uh, in order to be considered for the program of their choice. Can they just switch schools for geographical reasons, like it's closer to a parent's workplace or something like that? Yes, they can, as a matter of fact, Maureen. In fact, uh, several parents do that. For instance, let's say they uh, live in in Chula Vista but work in Sorrento Valley, then they absolutely can put in an an application for a school that is closer to their work uh, place in order to make it more convenient uh, to get their child to and from school. Why does San Diego Unified offer this school choice window? Well, the genesis of it goes way back to integration, actually. That was the basis uh, of the original program back in the 60s and 70s uh, in order to try to diversify the um, school district. And what has transpired is, uh, you know, children have so many different interests and parents especially are interested in the best fit for their child. So this opportunity um, is, is, is the chance for them to get that. But because there is such a demand for it, there has to be a window, there has to be a timetable, and that timetable is now. Uh, So first come, first serve in the sense that all of those applications that come in now will be uh, considered a priority. Is San Diego Unified the only district to offer school choice program? No, there are other districts uh, that that do offer the program, but San Diego Unified, of course, is the largest district in the county and offers the most programming and has the most school campuses. So that's why it's open to any parent uh, of any child in the county. Uh, They can apply to San Diego Unified Choice Programs. Okay, MJ, you've been hinting at it, but let me ask you specifically to go through how does the program work? 
Uh, there is a welcome center at the administration building, which is located in University Heights, where parents can physically go and they can be walked through the process of the application. It's a pretty basic application uh, with specifics about your child and also the programs that they're interested in pursuing. But because of COVID, um, they have not had much business at the welcome center. And so a lot of it is being done online and by simple telephone call. So by going to sandy.net, there is a a parental portal that has information on the choice program, and that's where you begin the process. And it's important to act now because, as I said, these applications that are coming in now are applications that will be considered priority for the next school year. Okay, so people look at what's offered and they make a selection. Do they have only one selection or can they choose more than one school? top three choices. So in order of your uh, the school that you would like your child to go to most. So that would be three choices. And the good news is um, the outcome usually works in the favor of the parent and the child. Uh, they say about 75% of those who apply uh, are given at least one of their first three choices. If there are more students who apply for a spot in a school than the school has spots, How is that decision made? Who gets in? So there is an electronic lottery that happens in late February, and that is how uh, students are chosen. And then once the lottery has occurred, parents are notified by email uh, as to the outcome of their choice. And this year, more schools are still offering online options for students, and some parents have actually found that works best for their children. You met one of them and spoke with her. Yes. Uh, That option works for students who work well independently, uh, who don't need as much support, and who actually thrived in that kind of a uh, situation. Um, And so uh, that is still being offered. It's called the Virtual Academy. Uh, I will tell you that um, it is a challenge to even get into the Virtual Academy uh, because of the interest in that program. So you're saying about 75% of kids get a spot at one of their chosen schools. That, of course, means 25% don't. So is there something to look for that might give a student an edge in getting into a chosen school? Not really. Um, Of course, you always want to be honest in your application and you want to put your best foot forward. But ultimately, uh, as we mentioned, it is Uh, decided by an electronic lottery system. But as I said, there's hope because if a child does not get the choice school that they want, there is a wait list. Um, And then, of course, San Diego Unified is very clear that all of the neighborhood schools are able to meet the needs of students, uh, even if they're not able to get into a choice school. Has there been an increase in applications for the program so far? Uh, Actually, there has been. Um, It's almost doubled in just the first couple of weeks uh, that uh, it has been, the window has been open. They expect more than 10,000 applications by the time we get to November 15th, which is the deadline for this window. Um, The officials tell me that parents are especially interested in choice because of COVID and because of the pandemic. They want to be more involved in their child's education. And making a choice in where their child goes and attends school is something that is very important these days uh, to most parents. 
So tell us again where parents get information about the program and the schools. And also, I believe there are Zoom forums coming up. Yes, there are Zoom forums. All of that information can be found at sandy.net, S-A-N-D-I dot net. Uh, that is the district uh, website. And it will uh, lead you to a parent portal and uh, information to all of that. But yes, you are correct. There will be Zoom sessions because some parents are a little bit perplexed by the whole process and they uh, are available to uh, talk to someone live on a Zoom call uh, in order to get the information that they need to fill out those applications. In addition to providing spots for students who want to come to a specific school, do those schools have to increase staff in order to accommodate the new students? Well, they certainly have to have the staff in the first place to offer these programs and to have people teach them. Uh, Because of COVID and because of all that has transpired in the past 18 months, there is a shortage of teachers. And more specifically, there's a shortage of substitute teachers. And so the district is actively recruiting uh, for those positions. And they're obviously looking for people um, in specialized areas like the arts, like science, like like mathematics and so forth. Um, And substitutes um, are required to have a bachelor's degree, but after that, uh, there is a process to go through and become an employee of San Diego Unified. I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., thank you. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. Jade Heinemann is out today. And today we're bringing you a California Report magazine special about a drug epidemic that's been raging throughout the pandemic. More than 93,000 people died of a drug overdose nationwide last year. That means an average of 250 people dying every day. The country set some really grim records in 2020. More people died from opioids like fentanyl and stimulants like meth than ever before. KQED health reporter Leslie McGlurg takes it from here. San Francisco is a relatively small city compared to New York or Los Angeles, but surprisingly, its overdose death rate is three times higher than either New York or LA. Nearly three times as many people in San Francisco died from drugs than from COVID last year. And so I really wanted to see this problem firsthand. I visited a hospital near the Tenderloin. Typically, an overdose patient comes in from the community on an ambulance. You know, we get a ring down saying somebody was found who's not breathing, who's blue. That's Dr. Joanne's son. She's an ER doctor at St. Francis Memorial Hospital. It seems to me that they're mainly overdosing on fentanyl. A lot of times they don't even realize that what they bought off the street was fentanyl. Their intent was actually to do crystal or cocaine. She says fentanyl is driving the crisis. It's a synthetic opioid that's up to 100 times stronger than morphine. It's now entrenched in street drugs. And that means more and more people are unknowingly buying contaminated drugs. Hi, I'm Dr. Sun. What happened today? I thought we were getting something else and we got a little bit of fentanyl. And what were you trying to do? Smoke crack. Okay. Ah, okay. How much? For decades, the state has punished people who do drugs. But the war on drugs 
didn't work. And so in recent years, policymakers have been switching gears by recognizing addiction as a disease needing medical attention. On today's show, we're going to hear from doctors, from caregivers, and people who are struggling with addiction. They're all involved in these two new statewide programs that are becoming models for the rest of the country. I see us as a bridge. I definitely see us as a stabilizer. That's first and foremost, and that's every emergency department. We make sure that you're stable. But then I also think of us as a bridge towards social services. Dr. Sun's Hospital, St. Francis, is part of the first program we're going to explore. It's called California Bridge, and it's all across the state, from Redding to Fresno to San Diego. It's pretty hard to believe, but treating addiction in a hospital is actually rare and quite new. So the program has a two-pronged approach. First, ER docs are trained to dispense medication to treat opioid use. It definitely takes away any withdrawal symptoms you feel, which is the main motivator of trying to get a hit again. Yet, historically, ER docs have not given out medicine to treat withdrawal. For example, when I visited St. Francis, a patient there with a substance use disorder was in excruciating pain. He was writhing on a gurney, and he was so delirious he had to be restrained by an EMT. In most hospitals across the country, a doctor might have given him something to settle his nerves or maybe something for his stomach. And then once he stabilized, he might have been just sent on his way. That was standard practice. Essentially, you would get handed a piece of paper, and that was your referral to your treatment, and good luck. That was essentially it. That's Christian Halosian. He's a substance use navigator with California Bridge. Please don't come back to the emergency department was kind of the way that patients were treated. And I imagine then that turns the whole system into a bit of a hamster wheel, right? Then patients are back on the streets, and then they're back in the emergency room and back on the streets. And back exactly. On. They're going to crash land into your emergency department, not because they want to, but because they almost have to. California Bridge is designed to break this cycle by medically treating opioid withdrawal symptoms inside the ER rather than sending these patients somewhere else. The other key component of the program is assigning each patient a care coordinator to make sure that there's a strong handoff to long-term treatment once they leave the ER. Just letting them know, we got you. We're gonna try and do the most for you right now. Christian can help in lots of different ways. Maybe he might help a patient get signed up for insurance or fill a prescription or connect them to a treatment facility. That extra kind of hand-holding that these patients need to really start that journey of recovery. And you have a disease, we're here to help you. The pilot program, which started three years ago at eight different hospitals, including this one, it worked so well that the state then invested another $20 million last fall to expand the California Bridge model. Patient presents with mild opioid and benzo withdrawal uh, symptoms, irritability, tremor, sweating, last use fentanyl, crack, cocaine. And now 144 Santa. hospitals all across the state have a navigator, someone like Christian. He works at Highland Hospital in Oakland. Welcome to Highland. Highland is a huge hospital with a packed ER. Christian points to one of many posters displaying a phone number. And this is the key to life. It's the substance abuse hotline, and most hotlines connect you to a random operator. 
This one is extremely personal. It's connected to my phone. It's connected to all the patient navigators. Patients can call or text us. We turn down a hallway and Christian opens a cabinet filled with fentanyl testing strips. So Narcan, clean needle kits. Narcan is a nasal spray that's really easy to use and it can reverse an opioid overdose instantly. Usually patients have to go to the pharmacy to pick up Narcan on their way out of the hospital, but they often forget. And so Christian hands it directly to patients. He says that simple shift, it makes a pretty big difference. We, we give them out to every patient with substance use disorder or they can request them. We'll go see this patient in room 17. We're going to meet a woman who just received an opioid withdrawal medication, and it's the cornerstone drug of the California Bridge program. Knock, knock. Ms. Collins? Hi. Are you okay? Her full name is Sonia Collins Rochelle. She's probably in her mid-60s. She slowly nods, and then she tries to push herself up on her elbows. Here, would you, would you like me to raise the, raise the gurney on you? A little bit? When she's elevated a little, Sonia kind of straightens her headscarf, and then she pulls up her white bedsheet to reveal a really swollen ankle. She explains that she fell down recently, and then she had to have surgery. And then her doctor prescribed morphine for her pain, and then she ran out of it. So you started getting nauseous, and you started having a runny nose. Yeah. I've been sick throwing up out of both ends. You had a seizure during bingo? Withdrawal symptoms, opioid withdrawal symptoms, classic. In the past, Sonia might have gotten, say, Tums or maybe an anti-nausea medication to make her feel better. But today, a doctor gives her a drug called buprenorphine. It's also known by the brand name Suboxone. You know, very similar to morphine. It's a lot safer, though. So Almost immediately, Sonia brightens up. The drug treated her withdrawal symptoms, and it may have done even more. That was a really big intervention on reducing that person's risk. That's Monish Ulal. He's an internal medicine doctor at Highland and a substance abuse expert. He says giving Sonia buprenorphine could help avert a long-term addiction. A huge proportion of patients that we meet here, you know, they were started by the healthcare system. They had a pain condition for which they got prescribed oxycodone or norco, hydrocodone, whatever it is. And then they developed dependence and their doctor continued it because that's what we told doctors to do for many, many years. And that was like supposed to be good care. And the pharmaceutical industry told doctors this was okay. Drug companies highly underplayed how addictive these opioid medications were. And so patients would end up getting hooked and then they would run out of their pain meds. And then they turned to heroin or buying pills on the street or fentanyl or what have you. And then we meet them. It's a really, really typical story. Huge, huge proportion of our patients that's exactly what happens. In Sonia's case, they caught her really early in this cycle, so she's not likely to go down that path and need long-term treatment. Instead, she's prescribed a low dose of buprenorphine that she can slowly taper off. And that's our number right there, okay? So, and I'll write it down for you as well. Okay. okay. I hope you feel better. I hope I feel better too. Yeah. Sonia's a pretty unusual case because she'll likely recover pretty easily. Most of Christian's patients are a lot tougher because they often have to take an opioid alternative, something like buprenorphine or methadone, for life. Why'd you come here today? What can we help you with? Well, my sobriety, you know, okay. so to get clean, basically, just to get off of heroin and meth. Great. So, yeah. Great. Drew is 36 years old, and he lives on the streets. He often lands in the ER after an overdose. He's what some people might call a frequent flyer. We're only using his first name because of his illegal drug use. 
California Bridge is pulling out all the stops to help him recover. This is methadone. A doctor delivers Drew a couple of blue pills. He kind of winces as he chews. Doesn't taste good at all. How important would you say that medication is to staying off drugs or to your treatment? To be honest with you, and I'm not going to lie, no, I would have um, definitely um, stayed using drugs. I wouldn't see the point or like put myself through that, the withdrawals, you know, and feeling dope sick. And, and I feel like, you know, the option of methadone or Suboxone is helping a lot of people get off the drug. Because it's pure health for me. I don't know about other people, but I, I, I experienced withdrawals for like forever, forever. It doesn't, yeah, so. Drew's eyes kind of roll back as the methadone starts to hit and he slumps a little in his seat. Dr. Ulal says today is a success because every time that Drew takes an opioid alternative, it means he's not injecting heroin. That's why medically-assisted treatment is a key bridge tactic and part of a statewide push to make it way more widely available. It lowers mortality risk by about 50%. There's very little in medicine that has that big of an impact on a person's chances of dying. Studies show that patients who receive opioid meds in the ER are twice as likely to remain in treatment a month later compared to someone who receives a referral. But what's crazy is that only 3% of ER docs in the U.S. are trained to dispense them. Both patients and docs are skeptical of these opioid alternatives. Patients will ask, how long am I going to stay on this medication? How soon can I get off? And then doctors are asking, too, aren't you just replacing one drug for another? They're stuck on the buprenorphine, too. But Dr. Ulal argues that that's the case for a lot of diseases, like high cholesterol or high blood pressure. People will start those medicines and not bat an eye when they take it for the rest of their lives because there's benefit from the medicines and the benefits outweigh the risks. And I would say it's the same thing with this medication, with buprenorphine. He says it's treating a substance use disorder for exactly what it is, a brain disease that requires specific medication. California Bridge is training ER docs across the state to dispense it on demand. After visiting the ER, Christian takes me downstairs to the Bridge Clinic. This is where a patient can start long-term treatment. And the clinic is right inside the hospital. And that's key because it's a lot easier for patients if services are all in one place. Other slammed. Super People who do drugs are often battling numerous health issues. Now we can wrap around your care. We can get you into the HIV AIC clinic. We can treat your hep C downstairs with your substance use disorder co-concurrent. And social workers are available to help folks, say, find housing or navigate a child custody case. And clinicians see about 800 patients a month who are addicted to everything from cocaine to opioids to Xanax. I chat with a man. His name is Jose Martinez. He's sitting in the lobby while he's waiting for a therapy appointment. So I come here for peace of mind and to get my gears straightened out because I got a couple of loose marbles upstairs. He attends both individual and group sessions to improve his mental health and work with his trauma. I grew up in uh, South Central, Boyd Heights in LA. My mom got shot in the head in 1994, LA riots. Jose says he often drinks a liter of vodka a day. He says he's landed in the ER four times in the last six months. So the sooner that Jose turns his life around, the sooner he'll stop using the ER when he's in crisis. I need help, I want help. You can't just do it alone. You need a whole team. 
a team that believes in you even when you're messing up over and over. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. Jade Heineman is out today. We're returning to a California Report magazine special about addiction. KQED health reporter Leslie McClurg starts by introducing us to a woman who helps those in recovery. The road to recovery is long and it's fraught, and it takes a really special person to help someone break their addiction. As I visited these different hospitals, I met someone whose story really sticks with me. She's a counselor at California Bridge. This is not a field that I thought of in my junior high school plan. And before she had this job, she also struggled with addiction. And her goal now is to build patients up rather than to break them down. I want somebody to be able to walk in that door and not feel alone and not feel judged and kind of know, hey, I can relate. Her name is Monique Randolph, and she works at St. Francis. She's one of 144 substance use navigators all across the state. And people like Monique are really crucial to making California Bridge work. They use the acronym SUN. I'm the SUN, and I love that name. (laughs) Monique tries to flip the script that people with addiction issues are so used to hearing from people in charge. You know, when you're in jail, when you're in programs, when you're here at the hospital, they tell you, take your meds, follow up with the doctor, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. In my role, it was, how can I help you? Do you know saying that to someone is life-changing sometimes? How can I help you? Sometimes she helps patients find a safe place to sleep or maybe the number for a domestic violence clinic. Not everyone she meets is ready for change, but Monique always tries to leave the door open. Here's my card if at any time you change your mind. The program's only staffed from 9 to 5, and Monique knows her patients need services at all hours but she really tries to do all that she can with the time that she has. I'm looking in the mirror at what I used to look like, and they're looking at me as a mirror of what they can become. Occasionally, Monique will share her story with a patient to build trust. I snorted heroin every day, every day. Monique sold drugs and she robbed stores, all to support her habit. But deep down inside, I was just so rotten. My family didn't know for years. It was just my little dirty secret. She tried to quit many times, and there were stretches of sobriety, but they never really lasted. I'm like, I just can't seem to get this together. Eventually, she landed in federal prison for stealing, and she left her five-year-old son behind. When I came home from prison, I went to a halfway house for a little while, and I got me a job. 
but I didn't have a home to come to. Fortunately, that's when she found a program for women and children. And someone helped me. And they didn't judge me. They helped me make short-term goals for long-term success. And it's been 17 years. I'm not going back. Monique has since dedicated her life to helping others overcome addiction. About 40% of hospitals across California have hired someone like Monique through the California Bridge. And the goal is to enroll all remaining hospitals by 2025. <laughs> okay, thank you. I'm still around, okay? <laughs> the medications that are the cornerstone of the California Bridge model are total game changers, but they only work for opioids, not stimulants like meth. There are no FDA-approved medications for meth. And my colleague, April Domboski, covers health for the California Report, and she's been following this for the last few years. So I wanted to bring her in here. Hey, April. Hey, Leslie. So can you kind of lay the landscape for us? What's the state of meth use in California? Meth is a huge problem. Last year, more people died from meth and cocaine overdoses than fentanyl. And meth addiction can just ruin people's lives. And it runs up enormous costs, not only for the healthcare system, but also jails, courts, and foster care. And there's really no medication that can help these folks? Why is that? Meth is really different from opioids. We all have opioid receptors in our brains, and medications like buprenorphine target those receptors to stave off cravings. But stimulants like meth and cocaine affect multiple parts of the brain. There's just too many targets. Right. Researchers have tested dozens and dozens of medications for meth, but they can't find one that really works. So then where does that leave folks who do meth if they want to get off the drug? It kind of leaves a lot of them in a place of... Why bother trying to stop? Wow. I was talking to Kelly Pfeiffer. She's an addiction doctor who now works for the state's Department of Healthcare Services. That's the same department that runs the Bridge program. And she told me that for people who use opioids, there's an awareness of medications like buprenorphine. There's this understanding that at some point, I'm going to get help and cut back. But for meth users, it's the opposite. There's a lot of hopelessness in the community using stimulants, a lot less belief that treatment will help them. That's really sad to hear. I mean, is there anything that can be done to help? Well, just like the Bridge program, the state is now planning a massive investment in a new treatment for meth addiction. It's not a medication, it's a behavioral treatment, and it's kind of unusual. The state wants to pay people who use drugs not to use them. I wanted to understand better how this works, and so I talked to somebody who's been through the treatment. His name is Billy Lemon. He lives in San Francisco, and for 10 years, he was deep into meth, both using it and selling it. At one point, he was shipping pounds of drugs across state lines. I would get bread bowls, and I would hollow them out. I would line the inside of the sourdough with meth, and then cover it back up and shrink wrap the bread and then send loaves of bread with some accoutrement from Fisherman's Wharf so it looked like a care package to people in Boston. And then they would literally send me $15,000, $16,000 in 20s or 100s via FedEx. Billy was arrested three times. He spent time in jail. But that never motivated him to stop. He almost got put away in state prison, and that scared him enough that he stopped selling methamphetamine, but he kept using. To actually quit, 
he had to hit rock bottom. You know, there was a suicide attempt at Pier 23. It didn't happen that day. That's when he begged a friend to help him get into rehab. And the day he went to the treatment center, he showed up with nothing but the clothes he was wearing and a backpack. With zero money, literally zero money, not even a dollar. I didn't even have a cell phone. Two days earlier, Billy was walking by a park and threw his phone in the trash. Because I was... I had made the conscious decision to shut all those doors completely and and open new ones at whatever cost and however hard that was going to be. And it was hard. Billy grew up in a family where no one talked about anything. My dad drowned when I was five. My mom and I never talked about it until I was in college. She never even mentioned his name. Suddenly, he was in group therapy where he was expected to openly discuss his trauma and shame and self-loathing. It was, it was, uh, yeah, it was hard. But once he got a taste for talking about what was really going on, he was all in. I kept telling myself to look at recovery like a master's degree, like you're going back to school. It was like he got addicted to recovery. And so I was going to do rehab, and I was going to do two 12-step meetings a day, and I was going to do outpatient treatment at the same time. Billy went to the San Francisco AIDS Foundation to see what programs they had on offer. And they told him about a special treatment they did there called contingency management. Basically, if Billy stayed off drugs, they would pay him. Three times a week, he came in and peed in a cup. Every time he tested negative, the counselors would put $7 in his account. And for somebody who had not had any legitimate money without committing felonies, that seemed like a cool thing. After three months, those payments could add up to $300. And so I was like, yes, yes, I want that. For Billy, it quickly became about more than just the money. It was about being told, good job. It was the first opportunity where I was like, I have self-worth still, it's buried. This person sees it and is willing to give me $7 just to take care of myself. That was very motivating. Now Billy could feel himself getting hooked on this. The legit dollars, the pat on the back. And so once you get a little bit of a taste of that, um, for an addict, we want more of that, right? And we want it all now. And this is how contingency management works. The incentives aim to rewire the brain's reward system. So the person seeks the money or gift card to get a dopamine release instead of meth or coke. And you're like, oh, 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 I can feel good without the daily use of that substance. Oh, I maybe I should, let me try and go one more week. And then all of a sudden you're at 90 days and you've actually, you've made a change. But the treatment is controversial. Critics have scoffed at the idea of paying people not to use drugs, calling it unethical or a bribe. Most insurers don't cover it. Neither do state Medicaid programs. The feds generally forbid them from offering financial incentives to patients as a protection against fraud and waste. And yet studies show contingency management works. It's not that different from an incentive program to lose weight or a gold star chart to get your kid to do their chores. At the San Francisco program Billy Lemon did, 82% of participants stopped using meth or reduced their use. And this is why State Senator Scott Weiner sponsored a bill that would allow the state's Medicaid program to offer this treatment, potentially reaching hundreds of thousands of low-income Californians. 
Wiener was actually surprised the bill passed the legislature with mere unanimous votes. The Republicans love it, which I don't think they would, but they actually like it because there's an abstinence component to it, right? It's like we pay you money and you abstain from using. The governor has the final say on the bill, but the state can still move forward if they get the okay from the feds. California officials have already asked for permission to offer contingency management, and it looks like the Biden administration is going to say yes. It will be expensive, but California's Dr. Kelly Pfeiffer says in the long run, the state will save money. High stimulant use means a lot of people involved in the criminal justice system. Instead of treatment, it means foster care placements instead of children staying with families. It ruins people's teeth and lands them in the hospital with heart attacks. Which are obviously not only devastating to the person and the family, but very expensive for our healthcare system. Piper says making contingency management more widely available will make more people willing to seek treatment. Because people will see success stories. They'll see friends and family getting treatment and getting help and, and getting better. For Billy Lemon, contingency management was just what he needed to jumpstart his recovery and to stay the course in rehab. When he got his $300, he bought himself a cell phone. Because uh, up until then, Breaking Bad style is burner phones, right? My number was never the same. Now, nine years later, he's still sober. And the number he got with the phone paid for with contingency management money is still his number. It's a nice reminder of what making good decisions for yourself can turn into. Where California is now with contingency management is not that different from where we were five years ago with buprenorphine. People were alarmed by the idea of treating drug addiction with another drug. But now, thanks in part to the California Bridge Program, it's routine in California. As contingency management rolls out over the next few years, maybe it won't seem so strange to pay people who use drugs not to use. You've been listening to KQED health reporters April Domboski and Leslie McClurg in a California Report magazine special on addiction. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.